You're listening to the sermon podcast of Brockport First Baptist. We are a progressive American Baptist congregation located about 20 minutes outside of Rochester, New York. To learn more about our church and support our ministries, please visit BrockportFirstBaptist.org. This morning's scripture is from the second chapter of Genesis, which is on page two in your pew Bible if you'd like to follow along. These are the generations of the heaven and earth when they were created. This is another account of the creation, and I'm not going to lie, it kind of puzzles me, so I'm confident that Dan's going to clear that up. In the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, when no plant of the field was yet in the earth, and no herb of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain upon the earth, and there was no one to till the ground. But a stream would rise from the earth and water the whole face of the ground, Then the Lord formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living being. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. Out of the ground the Lord God made to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for the food. The tree of life also in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to till it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you may freely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall die. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper as his partner. So out of the ground the Lord formed every animal of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all cattle, to the birds of the air, and to every animal of the field. But for man there was not found a helper as his partner. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. Then he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. This one shall be called woman, for out of man this one was taken. Therefore a man leaves his father and his mother and clings to his wife, and they become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked, and we're not ashamed. So a little housekeeping before we start. I know we've had this audio issue the last couple weeks with this popping that starts happening. So just a heads up, this microphone here is off. If that starts out again, I'm going to turn off my mic and go over there. So if you see me midway through the sermon, work my way across, that's what's going on. It's, It's the whole audio thing. Um, Now that that's out of the way, I want to do a little poll. I'm interested to see. So by show of hands, has anyone here ever gotten kicked out of a Sunday school class, a Bible study, or some other church function for asking the wrong question? Anybody? There's a couple. There's a couple. That's less than I was expecting. I I thought this was a rowdier crowd. Um, (laughs) But uh, this used to happen to me a lot, especially as a kid. Uh, When I was like seven years old, I was the kid in Sunday school class who was asking questions like, so where did Cain's wife come from? 
And uh, if the world was made in six days, why didn't dinosaurs eat anybody? So I got kicked out of a few Sunday school classes in my day. And this was especially bad if I visited someone else's church. My mom was the children's pastor at the church where I grew up, so she kind of had my back. But whenever I visited another church, I was kind of working without a net. So I got, it got dicey. <clears throat> I've always been really curious about the Bible, though. I've always wanted to learn all there is to know about God and Scripture and matters of faith. But I learned very early on that certain questions are just off-limits especially in the church. Certain questions were a step too far. There were leaders and teachers and pastors who viewed certain questions as a threat. We don't go there. We don't ask that. And we're looking at Genesis 2 today. It's a pretty famous story, the story of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. There's no way we're going to unpack all there is to say about this passage today, but I do want to ask one of those questions that would have gotten me kicked out of Sunday school as a kid. And Jim kind of already touched on it, which is good. Did you look at my notes? No? Okay. <laughs> Here's the question. Why are there two creation stories in the Bible? And maybe a follow-up. Why don't they quite line up with each other? Let's take a look. So we've been studying Genesis 1 together for a few weeks now. We looked at the creation of the world and human beings and animals. And now in Genesis 2, we get the same story all over again. Um, there's even a little subheading in my Bible uh, right in the middle of verse 4 that reads, Another Account of Creation. Maybe you have something like that in your Bibles. Um, and by the way, those subheadings, they aren't actually in the original text. Those were all put there by translators to help us make sense of the Bible. Sometimes they're not very helpful, but in this case, I think that's actually pretty accurate. Genesis 2 gives us another account of creation, and it's different. There's no getting around the differences. They're there in plain sight. The most obvious difference is the, th the things are created in a different order. So, and we'll stick with Genesis 2 for a second, but in Genesis 1, creation unfolds over seven days. But in Genesis 2, verse 4, we read, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, in the, in the day, there's no mention of seven days. That whole structure is gone. Then God begins to create, and this is where things get really weird. Here's the order of creation in Genesis 2. It's on the slide. In verse 4, we get the heavens and the earth. In verse 7, we get the man, Ha'adam, or Adam in Hebrew. In verses 8 and 9, we get the Garden of Eden and plants. We skipped over the rivers. Sorry about the rivers, but those are in there as well. In verse 19, we get animals and birds together. And then in verse 22, we get the woman, the crowning achievement of God's creation, we might say. Hey, I, I, I knew you would like that. <laughs> That's what I like. Now, compare this with the order in Genesis 1, <clears throat> where we get heaven on earth on day one. So far, so good. But then plants show up on day three, birds on day five, animals on day six, and then human beings, plural, also on day six. The order is different. I have a lot of friends who put a lot of stock in um, the world being created in six literal days, which is fine. But one of the things I often tell them is the biggest threat to that theology is not evolution. It's Genesis 2. 
Nothing will shake our view of the Bible like actually reading it. Now, I mentioned at the outset of this sermon series a few weeks back that the way we read Genesis is going to influence the way we read the rest of our Bible, and that's very true in this case because the Bible does this sort of thing to us a lot. The Bible loves to mess with our modern, rational notions of how stories ought to be told and how pieces should fit together. We'll do another poll. Who here has ever read through the Bible or tried to read through the whole Bible? There's, there's a lot of you. Okay. Who here uh, tried, to make it, uh, tried to read through the Bible but got hung up at numbers? Anybody get hung up at numbers? Yeah. Numbers is rough. If you haven't, if you haven't read through the Bible, you totally should. But the book of Numbers is where it gets really hard because there's a lot of numbers and not much else. Um, there's a talking donkey, though, which is kind of interesting. But if you do make it past numbers, you're eventually going to get to the stories um, of Israel's kings. They're found in the books of 1 and 2 Samuel and 1 and 2 Kings. And it's a great story. It unfolds over these four books. There are a lot of kings. Some are really evil and they get punished by God. Some are righteous and they're rewarded. There's violence, romance, intrigue, betrayal. It's pretty good reading. But then you get to the end of 2 Kings where the kingdom is destroyed by the Babylonians. The last Jewish king, Zedekiah, he's taken prisoner, and he has his eyes gouged out after watching his own sons executed, which is pretty dark. And then the Jews are carried off into exile in Babylon. End of the story. But then you turn the page, you get to the next book. First Chronicles, followed by Second Chronicles, which tells the entire story of Israel's kings over again, except this time it's different. This time the book emphasizes the faithful kings. Some of the bad kings from the previous version are even remembered as good kings in the book of Chronicles, and a lot of their worst crimes are sort of papered over. Take King David, for example. He's maybe one of the most famous kings of Israel. David's big sin in the book of Samuel is getting a woman pregnant and having her husband killed to cover it up, which is about as bad as it gets. In Chronicles, though, David's big sin is taking a census when God tells him not to. Potato, potato. And if you think this is just an Old Testament thing, I have some bad news. Um, The New Testament opens with four Gospels, four accounts of the life of Jesus, and they're pretty different. Matthew and Mark tell a similar story, but Matthew gives us a lot more detail. Luke's gospel is also pretty close, but he switches the order of things. The the narration unfolds in a totally different order. And then John is off doing something, his totally own thing. In Mark's gospel, Jesus' last words from the cross are, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Then he lets out a scream and he dies. In John's gospel, Jesus' last words from the cross are a triumphant, it is finished. That's different. The gospels, like the stories of Israel's kings and the stories of creation in Genesis 1 and 2, are told by different people in different times to different audiences for different reasons, all of which, as Christians, we believe was inspired by God. So the way we handle these differences here in this first book between Genesis 1 and 2 is pretty important. 
if we can handle these differences, we're going to be okay with the rest of the Bible. But if we can't, if we get hung up here, then we're going to have a real problem by the time we get to the Gospels. So what do we do? First thing to note is that this is not anything new. This isn't something we've just figured out in the last 50 years because we're so smart. The people who wrote these books and told these stories initially were well aware of these differences, and it didn't bother them. When you look back at the commentaries made by ancient rabbis on, the, on these texts, they're well aware of these differences, these tensions, and they love it. There's a saying that whenever you have six rabbis working through a passage of Scripture, you'll end up with 12 interpretations. And that reflects the very different way Jewish readers and teachers tend to approach the Bible when compared with Christians. The people who produced these texts were very comfortable with complexity. They loved tension. They loved nuance. They lived for it. They believed that these tensions were put there in the text by God to give us freedom to interpret the Bible in bold ways. And the early church inherited this tradition. They looked at the Bible the same way. You can look at the writings of the early church leaders and you find that they read the Bible just like their Jewish counterparts. They draw out the metaphors, various layers of meaning and interpretation. For early Christians, a literal reading of Scripture was actually seen as the lowest point of interpretation. It was necessary for people who were just starting out in the faith and for children, but it was only the first step and unlocking the richness of the Bible. Now, not everyone was comfortable with this more nuanced way of approaching the text. There was an attempt in the first couple centuries of the church by some Christians to merge the four Gospels into one, a single authoritative account of the life of Jesus that would erase all the tensions, all the differences from the four Gospels. And that resulting document that they came up with was deemed heretical by the rest of the church. The early church understood something. In their wisdom, they knew that if God wanted one gospel, God would have given us one gospel. Instead, we got four. And if the church tries to erase these differences because of our own uneasiness with complexity, we'll end up losing what makes each perspective unique and special. And it's the same with these two creation accounts in Genesis. If we try to massage away these differences, if we read Genesis 2 in light of Genesis 1 or vice versa, trying to get one to conform to the other, then we're no longer dealing with the text that we actually have in our Bibles. We're replacing it with an amalgamation, some hybrid of our own making that's going to fall far short of what we have in Scripture. But what if we just let these differences stand? What if we let these tensions be? What if we leave them in place? What if instead of explaining them away or ignoring them, we read Genesis 2 in light of its contrast with Genesis 1? Well, then we might just learn something. We've already talked about how creation occurs in a different order in Genesis 2, but that's only scratching the surface. The differences don't stop there. There's also a different name for God used in Genesis 2. In Genesis 1, we read about God creating the heavens and the earth. Uh, the, word, the word there is Elohim. Can I hear you all say Elohim? Elohim. Excellent pronunciation. 
Elohim in Hebrew is the generic word for God, like what we would think of as capital G, God, or the way even Israel's neighbors would talk about their gods. Elohim just means God. But in Genesis 2, we find the Lord God, Yahweh Elohim in Hebrew. Can I hear you all say Yahweh? Yahweh, excellent. Yahweh is the personal name for God. It's the name God reveals to Moses at the burning bush. It means something like, I am. And Yahweh gets translated Lord in our Bibles, which goes back to this ancient Jewish tradition where people wouldn't say Yahweh out loud because they were afraid of taking the Lord's name in vain. So when they came across God's personal name in the text, they would replace it with Lord. So whenever you find Lord in the Old Testament, usually in all caps, that's the personal name for God. It's Yahweh. So right away, this version of creation in Genesis 2 is much more personal, much more intimate. God is closer to the action here. God is getting God's hands dirty as he forms human beings from the dirt of the ground. In Genesis 1, God creates things. God uh, speaks the world into existence out of nothing. But in Genesis 2, God forms things. Again, we have different words in the Hebrew, create versus form. And forming is much more intimate, much more personal. Think about a potter and clay. God's not saying, let there be humans. God's forming humans, shaping them. God forms a man out of the dirt of the ground, and there's a play on words there. Uh, The Hebrew words for, for man and ground are Adam and Adamah. They sound very similar. It would almost be like saying God formed an earthling out of the earth or a groundling out of the ground, something like that. The text really emphasizes our connection to the earth, to the planet, to nature. Human beings are created by God as a part of this world. God breathes God's spirit into the man, and the man becomes a living being. The word for spirit here is actually the same word used for spirit uh, in Genesis 1, verse 2, when the spirit of God hovers over the waters of creation. It's the word ruach, which means spirit or breath or wind. And here we have both a contrast and a similarity. There's like a parallel and a divergence. In Genesis 1, creation opens on this watery abyss. The spirit of God hovers over the water, and it's that hovering God speaks creation into existence, creating the sea, the sky, and all that. In Genesis 2, the opening scene is an arid desert. There are no trees yet, no rain has touched the ground, but that same spirit shows up again, this time over the dirt, breathing life into the human being. That same spirit that brought the universe into existence, that created the sky and the sea, the birds, the fish, and everything else, that same spirit is in every single one of us with every breath. Any attempt to divide uh, humanity from the rest of creation, to separate physical from spiritual, to rip apart God and creation, clearly is not in line with these two creation stories we have together in Genesis. Spirit and dirt the holy and the mundane, these things belong together. And then we get to the creation of woman. And wow, we could could preach a whole sermon series on this. 
especially in light of the cultural moment we find ourselves in. Similar to Genesis 1, this is a text that has been used against women for years. And the plain truth is that this text comes out of a patriarchal society. Uh, We have to own that. We have to acknowledge that up front if we're going to have any chance of reading it responsibly in our own time. But a few observations about what's unique in the creation of the woman in Genesis 2. First thing to know is that the woman is not created as an afterthought. It's often assumed by many that because the woman is created after the man, that must give the man some sort of priority, like the order is a ranking. Um, But there's nothing in the text that actually suggests that. There's a bad joke about women being made from a spare rib. Um, Of course, men are made from dirt, so I don't know exactly who wins there. Um, But either way, there's no ranking here. There's no attempt to say which is better or priority. The woman is formed from the rib of the man, or from his side, would be another way to translate it. And that really says more about the relationship between these two beings than anything else. Almost like this first man and woman were joined at the hip. And much has also been made about the woman being called a helper. The Hebrew word there is ezer, which has its origin in the Hebrew uh, word that means root, if you think of the root of a plant. So an ezer might be someone who grounds us or gives us life. It can also mean a protector, a companion, a partner. And in fact, Genesis 2 is one of the only spots in the Bible where ezer is used to describe a human being. This word that gets translated helper is usually applied to God. It's God who is our protector, our root, the source of our life. And the fact that the woman is called the Ezra here actually really says something about her creation in the image of God, I think. The woman and the man in this text are partners, companions, partners standing side by side in the garden. And for a patriarchal society, that's actually a pretty big step forward, I think. Do you get a sense of how much would be lost if we just tried to blend these two creation stories together? If we ignored these differences, all these insights, all this depth of meaning would just disappear. It's in the tension, in the contrast, that the variety of these texts emerges and brings new light to these uh, stories. How we read Genesis matters. How we handle texts like these matters. It sets a precedent for how we handle the rest of the Bible. It also sets a precedent for how we handle complexity in our own lives and in matters of faith outside of Scripture. Will we be a people who make room for variety, make room for tensions, and try to learn from them? Or will we prefer easy answers that reinforce what we already believe? We're going to be reading the Bible a lot together in the months and years ahead, God willing. I love the Bible. I eat, sleep, and breathe this stuff. And as amazing as the Bible is, few things will challenge your faith like actually reading it. From time to time, we're going to encounter texts like this, texts that unsettle us and challenge long-held assumptions about our faith. But my promise to you as your pastor is to journey with you as we wrestle with challenging texts like these. 
to be a helper, a guide, and a a fellow learner. I will never give you easy answers. I will never treat certain questions as off-limits. I hope you'll hold me to that. And as we wrestle with texts like these, tackling hard questions, being honest about our doubts and open about our struggles, I will do my best to make sure that we make it together to the other side. That's my promise to you as your pastor. Let's pray. God, thank you for challenging and confusing texts like these. Thank you for the nuance and complexity of your word. We praise you for being a God of mystery who calls us into maturity. And we ask for continued wisdom, insight, and guidance as we grapple together with texts like these. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed what you heard, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. You can connect with us on Facebook at Brockport First Baptist, on Twitter at BrockportFB, and on our website, BrockportFirstBaptist.org. Our theme music was composed by Scott Holmes. This has been a production of Brockport First Baptist.